Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Quiet Mart podcast. It's March 2021, and I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Elif Ojkan Vieira, a mother of three young daughters and an associate professor in sound-driven design and research at the TU Delft Faculty of Industrial Design Engineering in the Netherlands. She's currently working mainly in the fields of space operations and healthcare, both of which we discuss on the show. And it's that healthcare connection that brought us together because Elith was kindly introduced to me by a previous guest on our podcast, Yoko Sen. Regular listeners to the show will know that Yoko is an ambient musician who's applying her talents and skills to transforming the sounds of alarms in hospitals to make them less stressful, more natural sounding environments. This is something that Yoko collaborates with Elif on, and you'll hear Elif's own experience of working with Yoko on this show. Psychoacoustics, biophilic acoustics, architectural acoustics. I've certainly learned some fancy acoustic terms since I started presenting this program a year ago, and Elif wasn't one to disappoint either. She gave me a brand new term, and that term is acoustics biotopes. You heard it here first. It's such a new concept that it doesn't even appear on Google yet. That's how advanced the scientific mind is of Dr. Elif Osgan Vieira. She tells us that she's interested in the notion of acoustic biotopes. She told me that it derives from ecological biology and ecological perception. It's a space where people with different roles come together, such as an ICU ward in a hospital. But everybody's interpretation of that sound environment is different. So for a nurse, you know, they're going to be using the alarms and the sounds as information to support their workflow. But for a patient, it has very different interpretations. Alarms might frighten a patient, or they might need to be quiet enough for the patient to be able to sleep and recover. Edith says that we need to understand the acoustic biotope in order to better design human system interactions. On Edith's LinkedIn, I saw a line that said, Product sounds are the voice of a product. When designing a sound, one should therefore listen to what the product has to say. Really interesting notion of giving a product a voice. And certainly at QuietMark, our team of acousticians, we test a whole range of appliances and products, and you'd be amazed at the variety of voices that you might hear in a single category. Only the quietest 10 to 20% are QuietMark certified. And as I speak in mid-March, this week in fact, our CEO founder, Poppy Skeeler, was interviewed by a great journalist at NBC News, Hannah Horvath. And Hannah wanted to know more about how we test air purifiers for an NBC News feature that you can find and it's called the five best air purifiers of 2021, according to those experts. Well, it was very nice that QuietMark was one of the experts featured in that article. There's a part where Poppy is quoted as saying, just because an appliance is quiet, it doesn't mean it's not disturbing. She goes on to say, think of a mosquito. They aren't loud, but you soon notice one when you've got one in the room and they become very noticeable. The NBC News feature is a great piece to read if you're interested to know more about how QuietMark assesses products. In fact, we're currently updating our website to offer more detailed information about our testing processes and what it takes to achieve QuietMark certification. But for now, with no further ado, let me read Elif's bio to you and tell you a little bit about TU Delft, and then we'll enjoy a lovely chat with Elif herself. 
Dr. Elif Ojkan Vieira is Associate Professor of Sound Driven Design and Research at the Faculty of Industrial Design and Engineering, TU Delft. She teaches and does research on form and experience driven and sound driven design. Her academic career started at TU Delft as well, doing a PhD study on product sounds called Product Sounds, Fundamentals and Application. With this study, she's the first to establish a comprehensive theory about product sounds based on empirical evidence. Sound design has always fascinated Elif, regarding her background as a sound designer for a popular radio station, Radio ODTU in Ankara, Turkey, and as an interaction designer for Novo Design Group in Lisbon, Portugal. Industrial design caught her interest in the Middle East Technical University in Ankara, where she received her degree in industrial design. Due to this whole journey in several countries, she speaks Turkish, English and Portuguese. She's currently concerned with sound-driven design and research in the fields of mobility, space operations and healthcare. She's thereby the director of the Critical Alarms Lab, which is a new initiative at the TU Delft faculty. The Critical Alarms Lab aims to shape the future of product user interactions in complex environments through audible, visual and haptic information design. The lab itself is a flexible consortium of individuals, institutes and companies and it offers multiple opportunities for student participation. When Elif isn't busy doing her research activities, she likes to take photos, jog and play tennis and she enjoys spending time with her husband and three daughters. In fact, this explains her occupation as a sounding board member of Jewis, the Women's Network of the TU Delft, in which she's an advocate for women in science. Top education and research are central to TU Delft, the oldest and largest technical university in the Netherlands. Their eight faculties offer 16 bachelor and more than 30 master courses. They have more than 25,000 students and 6,000 employees sharing a fascination with science, design and technology. Their shared mission, impact for a better society. So here to tell us more about her work and TU Delft is Dr. Elif Ojkan Vieira. Welcome to the show, Elif. Thank you, Simon, for having me. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a, a mother of three and a busy professor of sound-driven design, so I'm surprised you can spare me the time. I'm really grateful. No, it's my pleasure. I really uh, enjoy such interactions, especially in the absence of, you know, meeting friends. Now podcasts are the new Friday afternoon parties, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. And because we can't be present, you should let the listeners know where you're talking to us from. Actually, I'm in the Netherlands, quite far away from England, and uh, I uh, I work in TU Delft, and I live very close to work. So, like a true Dutch person, I uh, cycle to work and uh, you know listen to the to the bell sounds of the bicycles and and uh, go near the canals, and it, it's a lovely place to be actually. That's lovely. Are you still doing that during lockdown? Yeah, uh, we have a curfew uh, in the evenings, but we are allowed to go out until nine o'clock. You know, the Dutch are very liberal when it comes to curfew or these restrictions. <laughs> so we still make the most out of it. We are um, enjoying the free time a bit outside, but not in a, a big community, just uh, as a family. I'm an avid cyclist myself. Uh, I cycle most most days and have been doing so through throughout lockdown just to get a bit of exercise. Do you are you a headphones wearer when you cycle? Can you listen to podcasts on the ride? Yeah, I uh, actually listen to audiobooks. Oh. I really really enjoy it. Uh, it just takes me away from you know 
it's a good way of transporting yourself and traveling is no longer an option. It's true. I enjoy it. I find when I'm cycling, the cadence of turning the pedals, somehow it really sort of tunes me into what I'm listening to. Of course, you have to be aware of traffic. and But when you're on quieter paths, like you said, the, the canal paths and stuff, I really find that you can really, like when I'm listening to podcasts, I really, I can remember them more if I've listened to them on my bike than if I've listened to them when I'm doing the housework, for example. It's, it, they really commit to your memory when you listen in that circumstance. I think maybe you're touching upon something very interesting that we are working on. Uh, it's the resonance frequency. So in our brain, we also have aesthetic resonance. And I wonder if it is possible that you cycling, you know, kind of uh, makes your brain work in a different way, that you are more open for receiving uh, information and enjoy, uh, you know, truly actually what you're experiencing. So it's interesting that you mention it. So what we'll have to do is to anyone who's listening to this podcast while cycling, we'll have to, to ask them to get in touch with us on so, social media. We'll send them a list of questions and see what they can remember from the show and see if they compare better to people who weren't cycling. Is that, does that sound like a good experiment? I love this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it together. But back to Two Delft, um, the Two Delft Faculty of Industrial Design Engineering. Who is Two Delft? What is Two Delft? Um, we are a technical school, and uh, we have aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, but we also have, uh, you know, uh, natural sciences, physics and chemistry, and uh, all, all that stuff like nanobiology and you know very fancy uh, technical uh, uh, studies that we offer to our students. Uh, I am in a more, uh, um, I'm in the uh, school of design. So we are, yes, technical, but we are somewhere between art and technology in which we try to combine, you know, different creative skills uh, to address uh, human-centered issues. Um, and we try to offer, you know, technological solutions that really meet the human needs and values and capacity uh, so that uh, whatever you know, is offered to the users, actually, it makes sense in their daily lives. So, you know, the products and objects are seamly, uh, seamlessly integrated uh, in people's lives. So that's uh, what we try to do in the, in the faculty. I like what you said there about being somewhere between art and design. And the, it resonates quite clearly with me because one of the last people I interviewed for the Quiet Mark podcast was Lisa Lavia, who is the managing director of the Noise Abatement Society. And she was talking to us about a project called the West Street Story. Um, and she was saying that there was an area in Brighton, in the, on, the, on the coast in the south of England, there's a clubbing district. Brighton's well known as being a really club town. It's a, got a fantastic community, very vibrant community. And the residents in West Street, which is the clubbing district, weren't complaining about the noise. They, in fact, they, they loved living in that vibrant area. So they weren't complaining about the noise. But what they did say was that they were concerned because when there was a noise, when the clubs were closing late at night, they couldn't, differ they couldn't differentiate between sounds of concern like someone you know in a fight or someone who was screaming for help or someone who was just shouting out drunken on a Friday night or a Saturday night and having a drunken brawling time they couldn't tell let's to, to, to coin a phrase they couldn't tell the difference between distress 
and dancing, for want of a better term. And an artist, you talk about art and design. So an artist who was Martin Ware, who is a sound designer, but he was the, one of the founder members of the Human League, the big 80s electronica band, of course. He was a sound designer on this project called The West Street Story. And together with the Noise Abatement Society and some other experts, they looked at that area, they addressed it, and they treated it with 3D sound design. And one of the things that came out of that report was that the night they did that was the first time that Brighton Hospital didn't have anyone coming into their A&E department, their emergency uh, area, as a result of a fight after afterwards in a club. People listened to the soundscapes and they went home peacefully. And it took an artist's presence to sort of make that work. And that became a paper which has been rolled out in cities around the world where there are clubbing districts. So you must understand very well then in what you do, the importance of the artist's approach to design. And in fact, that brings us onto the subject of how we came together, uh, because another episode of The Quiet Mark, one of our guests was Yoko uh, Sen, who is an ambient musician, who is dedicating her life now to adjusting, well, improving the future soundscapes of hospitals. And you, and you were introduced to me by Yoko. So I should ask, what are you doing with Yoko? And what do you think really is the importance of the artist in the presence of designing products and soundscapes? I think that's a very relevant question. Um, you know, uh, in the faculty, I also teach a course called Form and Experience. And uh, we, again, have this very artistic approach. What, what an artist does is that artists are very observant, right? They look at the environment. They look at people. They... Uh, try to understand these behavioral patterns and and they discover phenomena that are interesting. So as an artist, you are trained uh, to discover that phenomena and bring it out and you know offer it in the form of art, but art with a message and uh, and of course the audience, the viewer is happy to uh, to consume that or to to experience it and to resonate with the artist. And um, with Yoko, um, we have a very, uh, I think, symbiotic relationship. Um, dear Yoko, she's amazing. Um, you know, I, I also see issues like with human sound interactions and I uh, look at them, I try to answer. But Yoko is so efficient in asking the, the, the right question, like, you know, point blank. And for example, she asks this very relevant question, what is the last sound? you want to hear before dying. And when you look at the soundscape of intensive cares, and if you have that question in mind, you will definitely design with a different mindset mm. than saying there are too many alarms and uh, what can we do with it? If that's the question, too many alarms, the answer is always, oh, can we reduce them? But if the question is, what is the last sound people want to hear? you know, in their last moments of life. And since hearing is the last sense to die, how do we approach that? You know, um, she brings poetry to the to the design problem. And she does. within that poetry, you also want to, you know, you, you feel that responsibility to respond in a poetic way as well. And uh, then the design solutions are not um, uh, pragmatic. And I think then it's more experiential and we have the technology, luckily, in our university, but also in combination together with other uh, medical centers, 
we have the possibility then to answer these questions properly. To understand to Delft better, it's a university, but is it also applying a service to manufacturers of products to help them with improving the design of the sound of their products as well? Uh, yes, uh, we have structural collaborations with the industry. They can be based on small projects and some research projects to understand the impact of their products on the on the user. But it could also be, you know, answering fundamental questions. Uh, for example, together with Philips Patient Monitoring Systems and Philips Healthcare, we are trying to answer these crucial questions about sonic issues or sound-driven problems in healthcare. I think it's a beautiful relationship because design without application does not exist. And you can be a theorist as a designer, of course, and I think it has a legitimate place. But to offer something applicable to our students and to our community, we need to go hand in hand with the, with the industry. So we make use of this, you know, structural collaborations in the format of research projects and answer these common questions together. Uh, and the industry has the means, for example, uh, Philips has patient monitoring systems, which we want to analyze, and we have the knowledge to understand uh, the user experience. So, you know, why don't we just, you know, collaborate and make the, the efforts a little bit more coordinated and uh, more efficient and to the point. Something Yoko said to me, she accredited, if you like, her being Japanese as being an integral part of her approach. She was saying that Japanese culture tends to blend technology and nature together. And so she's not saying that she wants to replace the sounds of alarms with nature. There was a report that I was reading about alarm fatigue, where clinicians become desensitized to the sounds of alarms in hospitals. One report said that 72% to 95% of alarm sounds weren't emergency sounds. They weren't um, they didn't need to alert the clinicians, but it was the small percentage which were, were vital. And if they were missed, of course, it could lead to certain fatalities. And one of the questions I was sort of saying to Yoko or that, that that froze up is, you know, in layman's terms, you might go, well, hang on a minute. If 72% of the alarms aren't useful, why don't you just turn those off and only let the machines alarm when uh, it's important? Um, and there's definitely the environment plays an important role, right? We can't just say let's get rid of these alarms, and because the less the last 25 or five percent alarms are actionable, we only play that. One of the things that we discovered is that nurses actually use these alarms as a way of distant monitoring. So, you know, with the visual monitoring, you are stuck to the screen, so mm -hmm. you can follow the all the graphics and, and of course you you try to understand what happens to a patient but they have to leave their station to help other patients or to get medication or to do something else and very often these alarms are also set in such a way that it gives uh, temporal information so if the syringe pump is uh, set to you know provide alimentation, food, nutrition to the to the patient, there is a certain limit. And you can say, well, warn me half hour before, you know, the syringe pump is empty. 
and then yes, you are warned half hour before, and then say, I want to be warned again 15 minutes before, and then five, and then two, and when it's over, so then you start to create, you know, the amount of alarm that actually you needed to act to change the syringe pump could be downsized to one. But actually what you're doing is that you're mentally preparing yourself to this uh, helping the patient through alarms. So these alarms are important. It provides uh, information to the, to the nurses and the way they set the alarms also depends on their um, years of experience, their you know, uh, age, uh, their sensitivity to, uh, to the sound environment. So there are lots of factors. An experienced nurse, for example, can set the alarms quite broad. That means that the limits are broad. It won't uh, alert the, the, the nurse very quickly. But an inexperienced nurse will also have a, a bit more uh, neurotic character, perhaps, because they are understanding the job on the spot, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to learn, they want to gain experience. So they set the alarms very narrow. So every time something happens, there's an alarm, but, but they want to be alert. They want to, they don't want to miss out on things. So there's a lot going on within that, you know, uh, 75 to 98% of these alarms uh, that are, yes, non-actionable, mm. but actually it tells something about the nurse, their personality, their sensitivities, their levels of experience. So it is uh, actually an ecological uh, issue. And therefore, maybe may I introduce a term that I'm interested yes, to please study? Do. Lately, I'm interested to understand acoustic biotopes. Acoustic biotopes. Yes, I am okay. interested in the notion of acoustic biotope. Uh, it derives from ecological biology and ecological perception. So uh, acoustical biotope, biotope is a place mm -hmm. where different species, but in this case, for example, in ICU, people with different roles come together. They're all exposed to the sound environment. But everybody's interpretation of that sound environment will be different uh, because a nurse uses the alarms or other sounds as information to support the workflow. But a patient needs an interpretation will be different because patient will be terrified to hear yet another alarm, mm. worried for their lives, uh, or they have sleeping needs and they want a quiet environment. But we need to understand this acoustical biotope in order to design better human system interactions because we can't just say one-on-one -on -one, do you like this alarm can you respond do you, you know is it urgent enough for you to respond this kind of uh, studying uh, alarm responses or responses towards you know uh, functional sounds uh, uh, is now a bit outdated because systems are complex at the moment and we have enough knowledge to uh, understand you know, socio-technological system and respond to it. On your LinkedIn, there's a line that says, product sounds are the voice of a product. When designing a sound, one should therefore first listen to what the product has to say. And with that in mind, I mean, I live in a world where we're speaking English, you know, and if I suddenly woke up one day and the world was speaking Japanese... I wouldn't have a clue what was going on. And similarly, these machines in hospitals are speaking a language which 
even the bits like we said the 72 percent or whatever but the percentage is that isn't um uh, urgent nevertheless there's a language in those alarms which is constantly informing the nurses and i'm really interested in what you were saying there about the experienced nurses almost using those sounds almost as an instrument to help them when they're away from the beds it's not you know the non-visual element of what they do you're so taking that a step further I know that you're fascinated with sound design and you have a background as a sound designer for popular radio stations and also as an interaction designer. Um, how do you decide when you're changing that voice? How do you approach that? And the other thing is, what difference can you make if we don't want to have what I described there as a, the English going Japanese syndrome? Um, I think uh, we need to understand the user and their context in order to respond to this. Uh, radical change is sometimes really good because uh, uh, it alerts people, it <laughs> makes people really want to understand the system. But at the same time, um, healthcare and design for healthcare or applications of healthcare products, you know, and, and the field itself is very conservative. You want evidence-based solutions, you want that things work 110% and everything is like a, a well-oiled, uh, you know, machine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and people work really hard to keep their routine. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. a nurse will have scheduled uh, um, actions to take throughout the day and, and they have to use a certain language. So, to understand this rather conservative world, you also need to respond to it, uh, I think, in an incremental way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am, you know, totally open for radical change, mm -hmm. but then this radical change, we have to put it in perspective and, and we uh, want to understand uh, the user. What I try to do, and I think that was a good solution, at least at the Erasmus Medical Center, that's also where I work one day a week, I work at the Department of Intensive Care uh, as a care, care technology lead. We try to, you know, come up with uh, technological solutions to some human um, issues with the technology. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do there is to incrementally, you know, introduce, uh, for example, the notion of alarm fatigue. What does it mean? Then I, I put some sensors, for example, in the ward, in the, in the unit. They were in the corridor, they were in the, in the patient rooms. These sensors were capturing sound events and we were measuring the dB. So we were trying to understand, you know, the auditory quality of the environment. But just putting the sensors made people really aware of the, of the sound issue. And every time they saw me, I reminded them of the sound issue. Mm -hmm. And we started to interact. So we started to work with the nurses, right? Uh, so we had them on board. Um, we had some exchanges of graduation projects. There were some uh, studies that were conducted together. Lectures were given, like we, we call them medical lectures. Uh, one of them was about, for example, uh, alarm fatigue or, or noise in the ICU or better uh, sound quality. So all these efforts are actually uh, preparing the ICU nurse to, to be ready to, to, you know, to accept uh, maybe a radical innovation one day. But we have to prepare them. We have to give them the notion that the change is coming. 
and they are part of the change. They are contributing to that change rather than, uh, you know, hey, I have this greatest idea because I am the designer and I found something that will really fit well with your workflow and then give it to them. They will never accept it. They will have resistance. No, so, they have to be involved. Um, yeah, they, they are involved and they feel valued. You know, nurses actually, especially nurses, uh, sometimes they're undervalued. I remember watching, I think last year on BBC when NHS finally gave, because uh, there were many nurses quitting their jobs. Mm -hmm. They were undervalued. When NHS said, okay, you can be qualified for, you know, doing small operations, like, I don't know, taking a mold or from the, a certain body part or, you know, just small operations. So when you're qualified to do that, and, you know, they started to stay in the in, uh, NHS. So... I thought that was a beautiful thing to do, to give them reason to practice their, you know, vocation, because they are there. Nursing is a vocation. Absolutely. They are very passionate about it. Mm, mm. And they can be in the decision-making process as well, because they see a lot. And uh, that's why I love working with nurses. They are fun. Uh, they have enough time to also think about solutions. And uh, so it's, it's a beautiful um, uh, collaboration with them. I read earlier that you were a sound designer for a popular radio station and that you also were an interaction designer. Give us some examples of the kind of briefs that you were looking after in your radio and interaction design days, the sort of things that you were doing on a day-to-day -day basis, just as an example. But also, once you've described those, maybe let us know more about how that then led you from a commercial to a medical field. I'm, so, I'm a self-taught sound designer. One of the things that at least I was very quick to understand is that sound design is not that different to, you know, product design because I studied product design. And at the same time, while I was studying, I uh, had my very first experience as sound designer in a radio station. I think the most important thing was first to understand uh, the emotions that are created by sound, like, you know, the effect of music on you. And when you start to verbalize these effects, you understand what, you know, um, what in that song makes you feel that way. And in visual design and product design, uh, there's always this effect on it. We call it now product experience. Uh, for example, we designed uh, sounds for dashboard sounds for Toyota Motors Europe. And mm -hmm. one of the things that you ask yourself, what does Toyota mean to people? What is their brand identity or the image that uh, they have you know um, and that was the first question we asked them and we were not only designing sounds for toyota cars but also lexus you know then you go down in a different uh, so lexus is very different than toyota so you have to understand again this two completely different brand identities one of the methods that we use talking about art again and poetry, mm -hmm. we asked the people to write poems about the brand Toyota in order to, you know, understand these feelings and emotions towards a brand. And then we did the same for Lexus. So it was very interesting that Lexus was all about luxury, of course, but also sophistication and power 
and they were these very, you know, um, different words compared to Toyota, and the, the feelings were like um, family and cozy, warm, friendly, uh, bubbly. So then we we thought, okay, if we have these words, what kind of sounds do these uh, you know words represent? Mm-hmm. What kind of timbres? Like what type of uh, materials would represent uh, the alarm sounds for, or the warning notification sounds for the dashboards? Then we, you know, understood the overall concept and we wa- wanted to go with the materials to create this uh, body of sound. And for Toyota, we created something airy and bubbly, yeah. um, some water-like. Yeah. Uh, and then I later discovered Skype did also something very similar uh, yeah. for their sound design, right? <laughs> and for Lexus, it was really about light and sword and sharpness. So we created more metallic, glass-like uh, sounds, more cold and hard. And, that, you know, that's how we worked. And it was interesting. We also worked for European Space Agency. And there we had a material problem. We were like... How do we represent? And there's a no, no brand, so European Space Agency. Yeah. You know, what's the competitor? NASA. NASA, yeah. <laughs> and you know, how how do, how do we tackle this? So what is it? And then we thought, hey, what is the mission all about? I mean, what kind of missions do we have? It's all about discovering life in outer space or supporting life. And what does life mean? So we went all metaphorical. So we created. Um, earthy and woody sounds for uh, for the warning signals of uh, uh, mission control rooms of uh, European Space Agency. So that was a bit easier because Toyota was a bit more complex. But what was difficult in the, in the ASA is uh, we wanted to eliminate this. We were talking about non-actionable alarms. The same issue happens in the mission control rooms. Mm-hmm. Only like out of 144 events that we observed in a couple of hours, only two were actionable. So the proportion is still the same. Right. So we wanted to have different layers of priorities. We said there are priority sounds, non-priority sounds. And within this non-priority sounds, there are informing sounds. Mm-hmm. That's about things that are happening. There are confirming sounds. When the operator knows something is happening, something is going to happen, so it's a confirmation of that. And then we created this um, urgency sounds from warning, mm-hmm. and then increasing urgency to alarming, and then urging, like do it right now. There's, you know, the mission is going to fail if you don't act. But warning is like be careful. Within, uh, so you still have time to act, but keep an eye on certain things. Um, so that was the interesting thing. And, you know, the, these design briefs, they all changed and became more complex with uh, uh, with all this complexity, the intensive care units. <laughs> we thought, hey, there are many different users for the same sound. That's what hence the acoustic biotopes, right? Yeah. And because many, many different species, let's call them, uh, or people with different roles reside in this uh, uh, space. So we have to understand it. But there are multiple different sound sources. There's speech, there's alarms, there's machinery sounds. So uh, that's why we cannot respond to the to this, you know, to the cacophony that we often use to describe. 
the sounds of intensive care with one design solution. So there has to be a more systemic change. Um, and there has to be, you know, um, for example, the voice of a nurse should be tackled, you know, like the voice assistants, they all have beautiful voices. Apparently patients also ask kind of that kind of service from the nurses that they're hoping for soothing sound and, you know, friendly and calming sound voice from the nurses. You know, there are many, many design opportunities. So hence uh, all these collaborations with different stakeholders, uh, collaborations with Yoko, but with other partners like Josh Lesinger from uh, from their Built University, that other partners, Judy Edversey from UK, um, you know, she's the, the, the queen of uh, alarm design. And um, that's why we need all these collaborations, all these people to, to help improve the soundscape. So the design brief is very big and large. And yeah. <laughs> complex <laughs> and when you were doing interaction design what's that i get into i get the impression that's the sound that happens when you click a button or touch a screen what is interaction design elif um well that's a very um it, it, there's a long answer to it but in, in it's short uh, interaction design can be anything from just uh, getting immediate uh, feedback from the system mm-hmm. and that can be auditory feedback right or the system wants to connect with you and they send these notifications. But it can also be something like the way they change the behavior in uh, Brighton, right? And yes, yes. There are much less casualties or people in the uh, A&E. So interaction design can you know, go uh, touch upon behavior change. And, uh, and I think that's when things get really very interesting. That's why my field is sound-driven design. It's never sound design. Mm. I'm not a sound designer that sits behind a sound editing tool and tries to change every single alarm. But I'm more interested in how do we interact with sound so that we are better versions of ourselves. We are a nurse, you know, we are a better nurse. If we are a patient, the alarm does not disturb us. We are a better patient because we are able to rest and recover. So um, that's the interesting part that when the design, you know, helps you change behavior or your attitude, the way you see the world, mm-hmm. the way you interpret the world, I think that's also interaction design and very subtle, um, but uh, actually quite easy to uh, obtain. We, uh, we did a study about culture change, for example, in the Erasmus Medical Center. Yeah. And we define three different sound cultures amongst the nurses. And those three different sound cultures, we thought, how do we tune them? We need to tune them because of them is like, I don't like the sound because I am sensitive to it. And the other sound culture is more about, uh, I want to help the patient. I don't like the sound, but I can cope with it. I can find ways, but uh, uh, patient focus. And the other one was, I don't know where I am because um, I am a newbie and I don't know how this works. So I will just go along with whoever my mentor is. So what we did was to create posters, uh, you know, to put in the ward, uh, just to create uh, this awareness amongst nurses that uh, there is there should be the sensitivity towards sound, but the way we, you know, that we should talk about it, that we should understand each other's needs with sound. And that is interaction design too. You know, a poster, a simple poster 
can initiate, can be a symbol of um, a wider uh, discussions on it or a bigger issue. And when you start to discuss that issue, you're also, you set foot to change behavior as well. For me, interaction design does not mean that it has to come from a digital uh, product. It can be as analog as a poster, as long as we change the way people interact with their environment. It's really interesting to hear what you're saying, um, all really around the, the power of sound. You know, one of the things that's been in the headlines quite a lot during lockdown is there's um, a growing awareness, if you like, of the polarisation that's taking place on social media. There's real partisan camps either for one thing or against it, and there's a lot of chatter online which is not compassionate not agreeable very it's blue or it's red it's left or it's right very opposing and when you think about it a lot of this is taking place in a sound free platform people are writing comments and there's no sound dimension to what's being said and we've all received emails which we've read and misinterpreted because we didn't hear it said, we heard it, we saw it written and uh, and arguments ensue when someone says, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. It would be interesting to see a more sound-based social media platform, wouldn't it? Oh, I would love that. And uh, I think one of the things that's been done now is to uh, compensate for the lack of sound with the use of emojis because, um, you know, we have vocal expressions. I mean, we can express emotions with our uh, the way we talk, the way we, you know, with the intonation and, and it can be powerful what we say and how we say it. And I think these e emojis, they, they are helping. But actually what I would like to see uh, is another platform, like the way Instagram changed the, the, the visual aesthetics of things and how, you know, we started to be more sensitive to beauty in our environment i mean um all these filters were helping in the beginning mm -hmm. and there is no such tool that i'm aware of maybe there is but i'm aware of that uh, that's about sounds and how we i think we really need to train or continue training our ears because children are amazing you also are a father of yes of three kids. children and, yeah you know you can watch for that the children are amazing my, my kids can come home you know, at the age of three or five, and they say, mommy, today there was a um, fire alert and it was exactly like this. And they could, you know, reproduce the sound they heard like eight hours ago <laughs> with no you know, perfect pitch. And, and I'm always astonished. How can you do that? And that's we brilliant. lose that sensitivity towards our sonic environment. And I think that's why we don't ask for more. We kind of give in to noisy environments. We say, yes, we are lived by the noisy uh, you know, highway and this is what it is. And yes, it's the center of a big city. No, look at Brighton, you know, exactly. <laughs> things can be different. And I think uh, we need to be trained. We need to be educated if possible. And uh, we have to listen. And I think social media with sound, at least it could help uh, 
you know, train our ears or tune our ears to maybe aesthetically pleasing sounds. Part of your occupation is as a sounding board member of JUIS, the Women's Network of Chew Delft. You're an advocate for women in science. I'd love to find out more about that. Um, so Chew Delft is a technical school and by definition, because of cultural uh, way of being, there are ma- more male you know, engineering students than female students. So, but it's changing and we are you know, making progress in it. But in this uh, Davis, it's Delft Women in Science, we want to give voice to uh, our female colleagues and that uh, we want to understand. So I am in the sounding board and it's a beautiful name because we sound out um, what we want to do, what changes that we want to have. So, uh, and there's an exhibition, uh, if you're really curious how you know this works or how we are highlighting Women in Science, there will be an exhibition in our library, and I'm sure it's going to be an online one. So I will be very happy to share with you uh, the link for that. I'm trying to think which one of our guests said it, but they said that the first sound that we hear is our mother's heartbeat. And so that's a very maternal, feminine uh, sound that we first ever start our lives with. So anything that's encouraging more women in science, like this initiative that you're talking about, I think should be embraced. Thank you for being an advocate for women as well. Share the exhibition link with us when it comes out and we'll we'll uh, help raise awareness to it. That's going to be great. You know, we talk about Yoko and uh, my children met Yoko and I said, hey girls, what did you think about Yoko? And then uh, my oldest one, I think she was by then seven or eight she said, Mommy, I loved Yoko's voice. She has such a quiet voice. And I yeah. thought, it's so beautiful because she captured that, you know, um, that's one of Yoko's way of being. And her voice is very distinct. And my daughter captured it. And I was very proud because she was paying attention to how different she was from other people. And it was nice that she used the word quiet. She didn't say anything else. She didn't say Yoko sounded friendly or in other words. She said, it's quiet. And it made me think how people talk to each other. And why is the word quiet an appropriate way of describing voice? Uh, Because I would never imagine that a voice would be very, of course, I mean, there's loud voice, but quiet voice and and, and also in a nice way. So... um, that was beautiful to, um, to, to, to see, you know, um, that vocabulary is important. And when you use it in the right way, it really uh, enhances the, this communication or the experience that is uh, that felt and communicated to you. Well, Elif, I've been listening very carefully to every single word that you say today. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your story with us. It's been fantastic. Well, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed. uh, I think we had a lovely chat and uh, I really look forward to also listening to the other podcasts when I'm cycling to work or just (laughs) taking some time off for myself. I'll be testing you on it. (laughs) have a good rest of the day thank you for joining us take care bye bye thank you you too
Our huge thanks to Elif for taking the time to chat with us. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I don't think I'll be able to listen to product sound design in quite the same way again. In this program, you'd have heard me mention Brighton's West Street project, in which Martin Ware, the founder of the Human League and Heaven 17, created the soundscapes which helped keep the peace as people came out of the clubs in Brighton. Well, since recording this program, I've had great pleasure in recording Martin Ware, and that episode will be coming up soon. We also touched on outer space when Elif was describing her work with the European Space Agency. And space is a topic of another episode of our podcast. I've recently interviewed Paul Gregory, who's a Global Specification and Training Director at Dyson, and Nick Dunn, who's the Executive Director of Imagination Lancaster and Professor of Urban Design at Lancaster University, talking to both of them about light pollution. In fact, both of them are members of the International Dark Skies Association, and April the 5th to the 12th is International Dark Sky Week. So I'll be asking them both what that's all about and learning more about their adventures in stargazing and the well-being effect that looking at stars can have on you as an individual. I do hope that you can join us for those future episodes, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Our next one will be a nice round number, episode 20. I can't believe we've recorded 20 episodes since we started this podcast in April last year. Thanks again. Stay safe, take care, and goodbye.